0: as the people of God. We we talk about this um, often at Grace Covenant Church. It's good to be reminded when we gather corporately and proclaim glorious truths about our God, we are are ministering to one another in the proclamation of song, rejoicing together, uh, discipling each other as we We proclaim the truth of who this God is that rules and reigns and has made a way for rebels like us to be brought in and to experience his goodness, fellowship, love. And so we gather each Lord's Day to exalt Christ, the eternal Son of God, who has made that way for us who were once far off to be brought near through his blood into the very presence of God Almighty. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 22 as we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Before we read the passage, when we have little breaks in between. I know it's difficult to jump back into where we were, but before looking at chapter 22, just by way of reminder, uh, maybe starting with a question, uh, please don't audibly respond, but from chapter 21, does anybody remember, just in your mind, the three S's that would help you remember the chapter? It's okay if you don't. Supper, sword, spittle. Kind of weird, but kind of laid out the chapter for us. Supper, sword, spittle. Three S's. If you remember, David is on the run from King Saul. He makes his way to Nob to ask Ahimelech the priest for help. And so in chapter 21, he goes to Ahimelech and tells him he's on a secret mission from King Saul to to not let known Exactly what's what's going on as he's in haste getting away. He's in need of uh, food and weaponry. David seems to be trying to give Ahimelech plausible deniability. If you remember, if in some way, shape, or form he was ever asked, which we find out in chapter 22, he is asked, "Why in the world would you help David?" He could plead innocence that I really didn't know what was going on, and so David deals with him in such a way, while David is a fugitive, Ahimelech isn't privy to all that, and so it's, a, it's an attempt to uh, protect him. And so he ends up getting bread and Goliath's sword and leaves Nob and heads, flees to Gath. Now Gath is located within the Philistine stronghold, and the king of Gath Is Now, a really important point, he's leaving and fleeing towards Gath with Goliath's sword. This just happens to be Goliath's hometown, uh, the place that he grew up. And so, in David's mind, if he was seeking to blend in and hide there as a fugitive, it did not last long. The people clearly identified who he was, bring him before King Achish, and... In order to to get out of this very difficult situation, we read in 1 Samuel 21, verse 13, David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on their doors, the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. All of that transpired in the previous chapter, and now we get to chapter 22. And so please, follow along as I read from God's Word. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad came to, uh, said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed, and went into the forest of Herath. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah, under the Tamarisk tree, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse, referring to David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you had conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son, Jonathan, makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord from him, and he gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of these sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I know I knew on that day, when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Hear the word of the Lord. We're going to spend some time working through this chapter from God's Word. Beginning first by slowing down a little bit, and then we'll we'll pick up the pace a bit as we go. But I want to slow down and, and look just at the first verse. Now, thinking about what has transpired in, the, in chapter 21, David fleeing, first going to Nob, then going to the Philistines in Gath, and then now fleeing and finding uh, refuge or solace in a cave, the cave of Adullam. That first verse actually, I think, gives us a, a good moment in time to, to think about It's before others heard of where David was and eventually start making their way towards him. But as we think about him being in the cave, him finding a place to finally stop for a moment after all that has been transpiring, being on the run, in the cave alone, This is what one commentator writes, which I think is so very helpful. The hour had not yet arrived for David to ascend the throne. Now remember, Samuel has anointed David. He is the anointed one, but the time has not arrived just yet for him to ascend the throne. It would have been a simple matter for God Almighty, who we've been singing about this morning, to put forth his power, destroy Saul, and give his servant rest over all of his foes. Yet that's not where David finds himself. We are sure that David would have preferred that, most definitely, but there were other purposes of God, other things according to his counsel and will that needed to still unfold before he was ready for the son of Jesse, to be put on the throne. And so if you think a moment about your own life, many of us are impulsive and hasty and wanting things to happen in a hurry. And we just need to be reminded that God is not in a hurry. We hopefully will sooner or later begin to learn this lesson, but God will do whatever he needs to do in us in order to create in us, do in us, accomplish in us, what is according to his purpose and will, which is perfect. And it may not look the way we want it to look. And so we need to respond in the way that the psalmist responds, being able to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, I mentioned the psalmist because what we saw in... Chapter 21 was that multiple psalms were written based off of that experience, and we again find psalms written about this experience, David in the cave. Psalm 57, Psalm 142 shed so much light on just these opening verses of this chapter. And uh, C.A. Spurgeon said, said of this particular scene, David in the cave of Adullam, Had David prayed as much in his palace later as he did in the cave, what we know from the Psalms, he might never have fallen into the act which brought so much misery upon his later days. Referring to the sins with Bathsheba, Uriah. But thinking about where David is in the midst of trials of various kinds, what we read from the Psalms that are recorded By him, during this time, we see a man who is finding his refuge and strength in God and God alone, despite, despite the circumstances. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over to to Psalm 142. Seven verses, but this Psalm is a prayer of David when he was in the cave. I hope that we can perceive something of this exercise by looking at David's heart. It's really helpful for us when we read a passage of Scripture like this to understand the context. So we've, we've read, we've heard where he is and at what point in his life. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that i may give thanks to your name the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me it is good for us to be instructed in prayer because if you don't if you don't see the the safe healthy prayer that's happening here i say safe meaning He's not going in a, in a way that is sinning against the Lord and what he's saying, but this is all in bounds as far as what a believer can experience and express to God. Maybe some are sitting here this day and going, man, the way this starts out, it looks like he's really um, showing a lack of faith in his complaints unto the Lord. But when we read through Scripture, there is lament and there is complaint that fit within the arena of a healthy dialogue or prayer life with God. All that he has gone through, he is opening up, unburdening his heart before the Lord. And it is, it is recorded in God's inspired word as direction for the saints to see how one who is suffering, and hurting goes before the Father. The complaints don't stop or stay there. As you work through the psalm, you're seeing one who, who is, is, is being reminded or reminding himself of the glorious truths of who God is and what he will do for his people. And what's so beautiful about this, we've we've camped out in verse 1, is just what happens after verse 1 ends and the story progresses. We see in the opening verses, God answering David's cry. Others who love the Lord begin to gather around him. We'll see in just a moment, a prophet of the Lord comes and speaks the word of God to him. What an amazing response of the God who deals bountifully with his people. I hope that was a helpful little exercise to look at a psalm that David wrote at this moment in time. Now, as we begin to, to pick up the pace a bit, there are some details here that are really interesting. David caring for his parents. David caring for his parents and takes them to Moab. Now, we could do a deep dive. We're not going to. But if you look at David's lineage, it points back to Ruth, who was a Moabite. And, and just in the Lord's providence, David taking his parents to seek refuge and uh, peace in the land in which he was brought out of. He's caring for his parents. He takes them to Moab. We see the connections of of God's plan of redemption and working through the families, bearing out and even where he takes them. And then I want to go back to verse five where we mentioned briefly about the prophet coming. The prophet Gad comes to David. Do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. Now, if you noticed, I, I... I jumped over the description of the others who came out to David because we will circle back and look at that at the end. Those who are in need are, are flocking to David, and we want to look at that in a little bit. But I want us to turn our attention to this prophet of Gad. Where did he come from? We, we're not given those details. Why is this this passing reference a big deal by this unknown prophet? It's really a big deal. Because it's, it's, it's what God has, has given David, provided for David in the midst of his time of need. It is significant. David heard his shepherd's voice, God Almighty, directly through his messenger. Now, if you're sitting here today going, man, I really wish I could just hear from the Lord. God has given us his word. When we see this prophet come and speak to David and direct him and where he should go, the the other psalm, Psalm 57, we're reminded of just the few opening verses. I want you to hear it and then think about how this corresponds. David hearing his shepherd's voice directly through the prophet Gad. He begins that psalm, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. To God's troubled people, he sends his word. It is, it is our daily bread, and it was given to David to direct his paths. Now, some, as you read through commentaries on 1 Samuel, the, the direction of the prophet is to actually seemingly lead David closer towards the trouble, which would be, in a sense, a test of his faith. God has spoken through his prophet and David listens and obeys because regardless of circumstance, he is rooting his anchor in his refuge, which is God, not location. In a person, not a thing. And so therefore he can say, God has answered my prayers. As I have cried out, he has brought direction, deliverance, to God, who fulfills His purpose for me, He is not leading me aimlessly. But this prophet, speaking His word, is telling me to go, and I will go. Now, in verse five, we leave David with his his motley crew, his entourage of about four hundred men, we're told, hiding in the forest of Harith, somewhere in Judah. And then, what unfolds is a horrific scene, as King Saul who appears, this description of appearance is, is an amazing contrast that's been played throughout the book. But you've got Saul, the king, sitting under the Tasmarisk taskmaris, tree with his spear in hand and all of the Benjamin, Benjaminites surrounding him. Appearances, it looks like that's where you would want to be. You take a snapshot of where David is, hiding in caves, in forests, with a motley crew, and you may ask yourself, where would you want to be? According to appearances, I'm sure, if we were going to be honest, we would gravitate towards this king basking under a tree with all of his people around him. Yet we see from what manifests out of his mouth that he is the one living in fear, while David is the one trusting in the Lord. So we are not to rely on what we see, trusting the peripheral, but really anchoring ourselves on God's promises and his truth. So we look to Saul and we watch his kingdom continuing to unravel before us. Saul discovers what has happened, that there are actually people forming, coming, and surrounding David. And the response is outrage he realizes that the people around him have not kept him properly informed and so realizing that his authority is continually slipping away he has the tribe of benjamin around him he first pleads for clan loyalty surely they will choose saul their fellow benjaminite instead of the son of jesse the pretender from the throne or from the tribe of of Judah. Then he appeals to their self-interest. Now, this is really actually important. You're going, man, you're belaboring these details, Joel. But there's much to this, and I want to unfold it for you. He's appealing to self-interest by referencing, did the son of Jesse, David, would he give you the fields that you desire and the vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? These details are important. This is the fulfillment of what God said would happen for the people who choose a king like all the other nations. I mean, it is almost verbatim. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, here are just a few verses. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen, And run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and and the equipments of his chariots. He will take the best verse fourteen of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. This is exactly what was painted for the people of Israel. When they longed for a king like all the other nations, instead of trusting God as their one true king. It's all coming to fruition. So I just want you to make a mental note. These details. This is a fulfillment of God's word to the people. Trust me. Do not trust man. They're watching this unfold before them. (coughs) Excuse me. And what we're seeing in this chapter is that everything that God said would happen, happened. My wife's gonna bring me something to drink real quick. Maybe a a mint. I apologize. Then we get to this exchange with Doag, the Edomite. Realize <clears throat> none of the Benjaminites would respond to Saul as he's calling them out saying, why haven't you told me? Could he give you what I've promised to give you? He goes on and on. No one responds. <clears throat> we were introduced to Doag, the Edomite, earlier in 1 Samuel, and we took note. Remember, he was the one that watched David interact with with Ahimelech. Sorry. It's not good if the preacher can't even talk. (laughs) My apologies. Doag watched, observed, and this Edomite took this opportunity to tell King Saul exactly what he wanted King Saul to hear. Now, we're we're referencing the Psalms a lot. Psalm 52 actually describes Doag. So if you're taking notes, Psalm 52, verses one through four, this is when Doag, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of of Ahimelech. This is how that psalm describes this man. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of the of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour. Oh, deceitful tongue. <clears throat> it's a pretty clear description that this man is up to no good, and we clearly see how this unfolds before us. What we have here is a description of an unjust trial and execution. So after Doag's testimony of who this man is, or who David is, and what he he saw, what we also see is, again, a mark against King Saul. Had Saul been, in the very least, restrained by the commandments of God, he would have inquired as to Doag's character and, according to God's law, sought a second witness against the priest the law required only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established and so doag calls out that ahimelech is the one who helped david out and saul does not hesitate to jump on this testimony as being the truth which will then lead to the death of the priests of Nob. Now, it's clear in the story that the people who hear this and are told to kill will not do it. Only Doag is the one who hears this charge from Saul and actually executes on it. The uh, unjustice is so clear, it is so weighty that standing before the people, it is a wicked king and a wicked servant isolating themselves as what we kind of refer to in adult Sunday school, a form of lowercase a, antichrist, one who is against God and his people, one who seeks to either teach falsely or persecute and they're functioning like this, and we see this throughout the history of God's plan of redemption. Little or sm- lowercase antichrist persecuting the church, persecuting God's people. And <clears throat> what is so terribly ironic here is that, and this, this was brought up by Pastor Andrew in referencing Saul's failure to obey God in chapter 15 when Saul was to completely annihilate the Amalekites. And you remember, he actually did not follow through both in destroying all the livestock and the king. But yet here, this irony is so thick. That was God's holy war against the Gentiles. And here we have Saul tell a Gentile, an Edomite, to conduct holy war against God's people. I mean it is it is a horrible, wretched situation that we see before us. Walter Chantry points out how far fall how far Saul has fallen. So years earlier, when he was not able to execute the way he was <clears throat> called to, now he obliterates both the priesthood and the town of Nob. Not a soul was left except for one son. Now, why this is also important and why we've kind of slowed down a little bit. Not only are the details sad and intriguing, but it also testifies to God's word going forth and being fulfilled. So while the responsibility of this wicked atrocity of killing the priest falls solely on these two wicked men, King Saul, and Doag, this also is a direct fulfillment of God's word against the house of Eli. This takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2. In that chapter, if you remember, you've got two wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Are we ring- is that ringing a bell? Did some horrendous things, functioning as the the spiritual leaders of Israel and committing wicked, wicked sins. There was judgment to come on the house of Eli, the man of God coming to Eli in chapter 2. "'Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons, Eli?' Above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming. When I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not an old man in your house, then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Now listen to this verse, verse 33. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. There is only one remaining, and that's exactly what we see in our story. This is the fulfillment of God's word. Abiathar is the one that escapes and flees to David at the end of this chapter. How amazing it is as we're watching the faithfulness and truthfulness of God's word coming to fulfillment. This, is, this truth we see in the New Testament about this mystery of God's plan unfolding and what seems to be just the wickedness of man accomplishing the very purposes of God. We see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 uh, two specific examples of this. Peter's articulating this so clearly, he says, this Jesus delivered up according, listen, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan all along that Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. You, speaking to the people of Israel, you were the ones that crucified and killed Jesus. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. This mysterious tension It was God's definite plan and foreknowledge for this to happen. Yet wicked men were the ones that actually, according to their own heart motive, wanted to kill. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. A.W. Pink helps us here. Thus did God make the wrath of man to praise him and work together for good unto his own. The mysterious outworking of God's sovereign will. Now, looking at the lone survivor, we have Saul and Ahimelech, and we have David and Abiathar. These two sections stand in direct opposition to one another, especially if you focus in on the final words of both. Saul's final words and David's. Saul's, you, Ahimelech, shall surely die, versus David welcoming him You will be safe with me. I want those contrasts to lay before us as we look at just some kind of closing thoughts in this chapter from God's word. So just by way of reminder, a few things that we see in this passage. We saw two different occasions in this passage where God's word is fulfilled. As we read from God's word, and we see his plan unfold perfectly. This, this bolsters confidence for the people of God. Two different occasions where he describes what will be the fruit if you seek a king like all the other nations. It's like reading through the Proverbs and understanding okay, God has laid out the roadmap to flourishing in life if we are willing to listen and then he lays out the road that leads to death. Will you listen? Before the people of Israel, this is what it will look like if you go after what you think will satisfy. It will lead to death and destruction, and we're watching it unfold. And then when we see Saul living up, uh, sorry, then when we see the future judgment of Eli's family, that again is that stamp for us to to be reminded that God's Word will find its fulfillment. What He has prophesied, what He has promised, will come to completion. What we also see in this passage with the lone survivor who finds refuge is the preservation of God's people. That even in the midst of a whole host of priests, and a village, Nob, being decimated in complete wickedness. Abiathar Abath, is able to find refuge with, with David. He, he stands as a witness to the way that God preserves a remnant all throughout history. We looked at it this morning just for but a moment, Uh, But we're reminded, even in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, whatever happens to the church, whatever amount of persecution, or even churches falling out due to heretical teaching or being disbanded, whatever the circumstance, God will always and forever build his kingdom. It will continue to the very end. Those who believe in him and profess his name, he will preserve his people, and then the last thing that I want us to see, and, and this is kind of circling back. I told you I would bring this, bring back the the opening uh, few verses in the description of the type of people who found their way to David. The many ways that we have seen as we've been working through First Samuel, in which David typifies the coming Savior. David is the anointed king who will one day rule on the throne, as we continue to see this story unfold, but it is but a shadow, a type pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so as we look at the people who gather around David, we see another way in which David typifies the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus. David has these people rallying around him, some would, would read the description and go, "Okay, these are, these are outcasts. These are the unwanted of Israel." M- that might be so. But the description given to us actually actually lays out very clearly the type of people that are, that are drawn to the anointed one, that, that run, that flee to the anointed one. We hear this description. Those in distress, those in debt, those who are bitter in soul or discontented. I want us to observe the description of each of these and just think for a moment how this relates to to sinners, to those who need to find their way to the anointed one. These marks are actually very... um, very similar. This, this should actually, as we're thinking about it, resonate in our own lives if you are now one with Christ. So first in distress, only the one who has actually experienced this type of distress knows of unspeakable sorrow when, when your heart first becomes aware of having, um, of having really sinned or defied the infinite majesty of God. Maybe one who has toyed with his patience, snubbed his mercy and grace. If that is you where your sins have actually really been laid bare before you, you recognize, as David did in Psalm 51, that it is against you and you alone, God, whom I have sinned against. When that reality becomes true in your life, that's the kind of distress of your soul that will happen until you are united with the Savior. Are you, or have you been distressed of the soul? The second one, in debt. In all things, we come short of the glory of God. In our thoughts, in our words and deeds, we have all failed to please him, and there was marked up against us a multitude of transgressions. So when you hear this description, those in debt, I want you to think spiritually right now. If you have sinned, you have fallen short of the glory of God. Just to clarify, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that is mounting before a holy and righteous God. And if, if you've never thought of it this way, this is a debt that you can't pay, a burden that you can't carry. And so if you are one who is in distress, you're moving towards the only one who can help you. If you are one in debt, there is one who can satisfy your debt. And then this last description, bitter in soul or discontented, The one who has been brought to realize he is spiritually bankrupt and who is now full of grief for his sins will be discontented with the very things which once occupied your mind or satisfied the flesh. You're going to find yourself bitter in soul, no longer being able to be content with what this world provides, but experience discontentment. And that's actually good. All of these descriptions, if it leads you to the anointed one, is the best place to be. One who is in distress, in debt, bitter in soul, no longer finding pleasures in the things that once fascinated you. Those now pale and you look and are are longing for for hope, for true satisfaction, for joy. And the plea this morning is to, to see this type of Christ in David and where these people are moving towards these people who were in distress, in debt and discontented, they sought out David they were the only ones who did so it was a a smaller group if you're looking at the lay of the land, 400 but it was a deep sense of their need that drove them to him and a hope that he could actually bring relief. And so it is spiritually, brothers and sisters. I think it's good to to dip back again one more time to A.W. Pink's writings. None but those who truly feel that they are bankrupt before God with no good thing to their credit absolutely destitute of any merits of their own, will truly appreciate the glad tidings that Christ Jesus came into this world to pay the debt of such. Only those who are smitten in their conscience, broken in heart, and sick of sin will really respond to that blessed word of his that we hear from Jesus our Lord in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Only those who have lost all heart for this poor world will truly turn unto the Lord of glory. Let us pray. Father, we join David in crying out to you. Be merciful to us, O God. Be merciful to us. For in you our souls take refuge. In the shadow of your wings we will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. We cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for us. He will send from heaven and save us. He will put to shame him who tramples on us. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Father, we praise you for being sovereign and trustworthy, as we have been reminded again this morning of the fulfillment of your word. We praise you for the preservation of your people. You tell us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we thank you for all the ways that David typifies Christ. The people came to him, and he became their commander, and with him they would be in safekeeping. May we see how this points to Christ, and may we also proclaim that Christ is our commander-in-chief. He is our Lord, and in him we will find safekeeping. May you be our refuge this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we respond.